Hello and welcome to this latest episode in our Herbert Smith Three Hills Public m podcast series. My name's Antonia Kirkby and I'm joined today by Harriet Forrest, who also specialises in public m Today we're going to discuss the increasingly important issue of the role of target shareholders on a bid. Now, it may seem a little strange to say they're becoming increasingly important because, of course, the decision as to whether a bid is successful has always rested with them. But what we've seen on a number of recent bids and in a number of different ways is shareholders making their voice heard more loudly than ever before. So, for example, we've seen shareholders seek to challenge the schemes to affect the takeovers of Ophir Energy and in Marsat. And of course, we have the tactic of bump charge, where a shareholder or uh, takes or increases its stake with a tacit threat of blocking the scheme or offer, or at least the squeeze out on an offer. And its aim in that situation is to try and force a bidder to increase its offer price. Often the shareholders we're talking about may be activists, but that's not necessarily the case. So it can be just a usual institutional shareholder or someone else with a case to put forward. So today Harriet and I are going to be talking about how shareholders are making their voices heard and how bidders and targets are handling that. So Harriet, shall we start with cases where shareholders have been successful in pushing a takeover through? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Antonia. So yeah, we can start with input of shareholders at the very start of the process and we're an activist shareholder. And in these kind of scenarios, it is usually um, an activist shareholder where they're pushing for a company to be taken private. So really, this is um, shareholders being a generative force um, for an M&A transaction. And there are quite a few examples of this, but most recently we saw it on the um, Take Private of Merlin Entertainments in 2019. So in May last year, it was US uh, activist investor Value Act, and it had a 9% stake in Merlin and sent a public letter uh, to the board of Merlin saying that the company should go private um, after a sharp fall um, in the market value. And so whilst, of course, the letter would not sort of on its own have been determinative for what the board decided to do, it was only a few weeks later that the board did actually recommend an offer from a consortium uh, which included Blackstone and Kirkby, who are the um, owners of Lego, And that uh, takeover did subsequently go forward um, and complete. And we also saw the hostile offer by uh, Melrose for GKM. That went through as well, despite a very public um, and heated uh, defence campaign. So it actually only went through by quite a slim margin. I think Melrose had acceptances of around 52% at the time of the offer went unconditional as to acceptances. But the point here is uh, really that GKN shareholders did accept the offer despite their board's uh, recommendations. Thanks, Harriet. Um, And have we seen shareholders seeing off a bid or at least trying to? Yes, absolutely. So usually the board and the shareholders uh, will be aligned on value, um, as you'd expect. But every now and then there will be cases where other interests, so for example, those of um, employees um, come to the fore. Um, And listeners may recall that a few years ago we saw, um, and it was an employee shareholder, um, seek to block a recommended bid for the Welsh water company D Valley. And the shareholder in question actually gifted shares to over, I think it was over 400 individuals. And he did that with the intention that they vote against the scheme of arrangement 
uh, to ensure that it wasn't approved under what we call the majority in number test. So just as a reminder, um, under the Companies Act, a scheme has to be approved by a majority in number as well as 75% in value of those who uh, vote um, at the scheme meeting. And ultimately, this attempt at, so we called that tactic, um, share splitting, uh, it was unsuccessful uh, because the court held that the votes by those uh, shareholders concerned could be excluded um, from the count. And so it did ultimately sanction the scheme. And the court noted um, in its decision that share splitting as a tactic undermines the spirit of the legislation and is therefore an objectionable um, action uh, for shareholders to take. But shareholders were more successful on the hostile offer by non-standard finance for a target called Provident Financial in 2019. That offer lapsed even after it had been declared unconditional um, as to acceptances at 53%. And the technical reason for the lapse uh, was the failure to obtain a regulatory clearance uh, by the last day on which the offer could go wholly unconditional. And the uh, clearance in question was um, sort of uh, the uh, clearance needed from the Prudential Regulation Authority. And a number of target shareholders, uh, which included Schroders, which had, I think, about 14% stake, had said publicly that they would not accept the offer. And so it's thought that the pressure of those shareholders, or at least the low acceptance rate, which was being seen for the deal, had some bearing on the PRA's decision to um, withhold or deny um, the regulatory clearance which was needed for the deal to go through. Thanks, Harriet. So, yeah, some interesting examples there of shareholders who've successfully influenced the outcome of a bid one way or another. And I think one thing just to flag at this point is it's really important that shareholders remember if they are collaborating, either to get a bid through or, or to block a bid, that they need to bear in mind the concert party rules um, and ensure that they don't inadvertently work together in such a way that they become a concert party without them realising or attending to do that. So particularly, I think people may sort of forget the fact that actually cooperating to frustrate the outcome of a bid can also give rise to a concert party. So moving on now, what about the uh, court sanction hearing? What, What arguments have we seen shareholders put forward there? Sure, yeah. So the two recent cases um, that stand out in terms of court sanction hearings, and those centred on offers for um, firstly Ophir Energy um, and then Inmarsat. And in both of those cases, the shareholders were raising questions ahead of the scheme sanction hearing about whether there'd been adequate disclosure in the um, scheme circular that they'd received. And this question of adequate disclosure was, of course, um, discussed between you and Mark Bardell earlier in this podcast series. So it's certainly worth drawing out um, now uh, the key points um, from those cases which we've seen. So starting with um, Ophir, here was a significant shareholder um, as legal and general investment management, which raised a number of objections with the company directly ahead of the shareholder meeting, and they then voted against the scheme. Then shortly before the sanction hearing, it again raised concerns saying that they and all the other shareholders had not been given the necessary information to make an informed decision on the deal. 
but legal in general did not um, actually appear at the court sanction hearing to raise those objections sort of formally with the court at that hearing. So at the, the court hearing, the court did say that a suggestion from a reputable uh, investor like uh, Legal and General, that the information provided to shareholders in the circular was inadequate, was obviously a matter of some concern to be taken seriously. However, they did also say that because Legal and General chose not to attend the court hearing to raise its concern with the court and to you know, answer questions or explain the detailed background to the points uh, which it had made, it was essentially impossible for the court to form a judgment as to whether or not the matters that Legal and General had identified were indeed material matters that should have been dealt with differently in the explanatory statement to the scheme. And therefore, the court's decision was to um, sanction the scheme. So whilst the court recognised, obviously, the, the importance of the concern raised and the sort of you know, issue of um, adequate disclosure coming up again since the Lloyd's um, HBOS case, it also emphasises that institutional shareholders who have you know, adequate resources and access to um, legal representation will be expected by the court to participate formally in the court scheme process to raise their objections. And it's unlikely that the court will decline to sanction the scheme, you know, without proper representations from the shareholders in question. For example, just off the basis of public open letters or, or press attention. So that was quite an interesting um, observation from, from the uh, Ophir case. On the takeover of Inmarsat, uh, which was uh, last year, the scheme was approved by shareholders at the shareholder meeting in May uh, 2019. But the regulatory timetable between that shareholder approval and the court sanction date was quite long. The sanction hearing was scheduled for the end of November. And at the beginning of November, a group of shareholders uh, raised concerns. And their concern was that Imasat had not made sufficient disclosure in the scheme circular uh, around a particular license. And they felt that license could provide significant um, additional value to Imasat if certain regulatory clearances were received. And so on a related point, they said that there had been a material change since the date of their shareholder vote in May. And that's because there had been indications that uh, this regulatory clearance would be granted soon, uh, they thought, uh, which would mean that the licence um, may start generating uh, that revenue. So they said, you know, the board should have negotiated for um, further consideration in light of the value that could arise under that pending licence. And they also proposed the court should require another shareholder meeting to be convened. It's interesting to note as well that if that had happened, uh, convening a new shareholder meeting would have required an extension to the contractual scheme uh, long stop date. And the objectors filed evidence uh, with the court, so they did take the formal step of sort of engaging with the court process. But they then withdrew their objections after the bidder publicly announced that it would not increase its offer or extend the long stop date for the scheme. Thanks, Harry. And as, as you say, the um, both in Marsat and, and Ophir cases demonstrate 
how important good disclosure is on a transaction. And, and clearly, this is something that shareholders are focusing their attention on. We've got the Lloyd's HBOS case as an example of where that was used to try and um, sort of elicit compensation in that case. So a slightly different scenario, but it was definitely their focus was the adequacy of disclosure. And as you say, uh, Mark and I discussed this in an earlier, I think it was episode two of this podcast series. And also just one other thing to note is that the court has recently uh, published a new practice statement on schemes and how they'll you know, cover classes and things like that. But one of the things it says in there in particular is that the court will specifically consider the adequacy of the explanatory statement. So that's a statement required on a scheme at the convening hearing and may refuse to make a meetings order if it thinks that the uh, explanatory statement's not in an appropriate form. So again, it suggests that disclosure and, and adequacy of disclosure will be sort of even more key going forward than perhaps has been viewed as such to date. So uh, shall we move on now to the catchly named bumpitrage? Do you want to just explain what that is and how we've seen shareholders use it? Yes, uh, of course. So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I think in the introduction, bumpitrage is where shareholders take or increase uh, a stake in a company that's subject to an offer in an attempt to force the bidder to increase its uh, you know, then existing offer price. So practically on a scheme, they will look to acquire a big enough stake to be able to threaten to um, block the approval of that scheme. And it's quite important to bear in mind that it won't necessarily have to get to um, a full 25% stake uh, to do that because the approval threshold required on a scheme is only for those voting. So depending on the likely turnout at the scheme meeting, um, and uh, shareholders can of course vote by person or by proxy, a much smaller stake than 25% uh, may be sufficient to cause that mischief that they're aiming for. On an offer, their aim might be to acquire only 10%, And having 10% will stop the bidder from being able to use the Companies Act squeeze-out procedure to sort of um, compulsory acquire any remaining shares. Or um, they also might aim for um, around 25% to block uh, the special resolution to re-register the target as a private company. And that's because activists know that blocking a re-registration resolution can often negatively impact the bidder's uh, financing model. And we've seen bumper trials uh, used on uh, numerous bids, but some of the more high-profile ones recently probably are the campaigns launched in the offers for Ophir Energy and tax systems. And in both those cases, the activist funds increased their stakes and gave irrevocable undertakings only after an increase in the offer price. And um, that's Ophir Energy coming up again. So it's just worth noting that uh, the Ophir board had two separate shareholder issues uh, to navigate. The hedge funds behind this bumpertrage campaign uh, were separate from the institutional shareholder who is behind the scheme opposition, which we discussed earlier. Thanks, Harriet. So uh, now we've talked about what shareholders may do, what, what can uh, bidders and targets do to protect their deals? Well, starting with bumpertrage, a bidder uh, can announce its offer is final. Uh, that's the sort of real tactic that, um, that stands out. And it's because if a bidder does that, 
the rules of the code mean that they won't be permitted to subsequently increase the offer price unless they've included a carve-out for, say, the emergence of a competing offer and then um, like a, a competing um, offer subsequently um, emerges. So if a bidder declares its offer is final, the activist shareholder sort of knows that it hasn't really got any um, power anymore and to force the bidder to increase the price. Of course, that tactic comes with a note of caution um, because if a bidder doesn't include the necessary carve-outs, it might find itself blocked from increasing an offer um, in a scenario where actually it would have wanted to. We saw something like that happen on the Apollo bid for RPC uh, last year. Apollo announced a firm intention, um, said the price was final. A competing uh, bidder called Berry then came along and announced um, a higher offer, but it was only sort of very marginally um, higher than that from Apollo, uh, which meant Apollo, because of its public statement, uh, best best and final statement, couldn't come back uh, with a revised proposal. So a no increase statement is a very helpful tool in terms of um, warding off potential bumpetrage campaigns, but bidders do have to weigh up the risks before using it and think about any carve-outs that they might want to include in such a no-increase statement uh, announcement. Alternatively, the bidder could simply try and call shareholders bluff and sort of hold out for them to back down and just accept the offer. They might do that with the expectation that it's very unlikely um, activists will want to stay as a shareholder in an unlisted company. That said, we did see Tom Hunter stay in uh, Dobby's Garden Centre as a shareholder after the takeover um, of Dobby's by Tesco a while back. So there's no certainty that that tactic uh, will work. Another option, if there's a difficult shareholder with a significant blocking stake and the transaction structure is a scheme, is to switch um, to an offer structure and set the acceptance condition at you know, 50% there to see if um, actually that means, you know, if they're happy to do that, that might create some protection. And of course, in all cases, securing irrevocable undertakings or um, if those can't be achieved, even um, letters of intent from shareholders will help. And that's partly because obviously shareholders will be tied into the offer under the terms of those uh, agreements, but also because of the simply the message it sends out to the market that the deal um, has significant support. And also finally, as we've touched on throughout this podcast, being very thorough on disclosure um, is always important in terms of um, protecting against um, the likelihood of uh, shareholder objections. Thanks, Harriet. So lots to think about there. Um, and I think in, in the current environment, we can only expect to see shareholders becoming even more willing to challenge a bid that they're unhappy with. You know, where we've got greater uncertainty around valuations and the future prospects of a company, I suspect we're going to see more, if not fully contested bids, at least some more sort of uh, uncertainty around a straightforward recommendation that perhaps, perhaps uh, parties have become used to in the UK. So thank you, Harriet, for joining me today. And thank you to you to our listeners. Uh, we'd welcome any feedback or thoughts you have on our public m podcast and any areas you'd like to see discussed in future episodes. And we look forward to you joining us on our next one. But thanks again in the meantime.